0: The Bane Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, monstrous savings emerge from the dens of discount beneath your virtual feet. Forgetting where the keys are proved to be quantum entangled with the land of lost socks. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Hey, we would be extremely grateful if you would take a bit of time and go over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and give the Bain Free Radio Hour a five-star rating. And if you want to give us any suggestions or comments, you can always email me at podcast at Bain.com. Thanks very much for that. We continue our excellent conversation this time with Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt, the authors of new Ring of Fire novel, 1636, The Atlantic Encounter. In case you don't know the premise of the Ring of Fire books, they are about a whole town of West Virginians who were flung back in time to continental Germany In the 17th century and how they have to adapt and eventually they thrive. In the Atlantic encounter a pair of Grantville uptimers working for the good guys in Grantville connected to uh, Mike Stern's Sail to America where they encounter Puritans, the Dutch in New Amsterdam, and that tenacious English colony called Jamestown. Along the way they deployed their secret weapon, a reconnaissance dirigible to take on the French and try to provide a new destiny for the new world. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. Now, here's the news Hey, all month long we are running the Monsters of August ebook sale. Get discounts on all Larry Korea's Monster Hunter International series ebooks. Save over 28% on Monster Hunter Siege and Monster Hunter Guardian. That's a savings of $2 per ebook. Plus, save $1 on all the other ebooks in the Monster Hunter International series, all of them. These discounts will be available wherever Bane ebooks are distributed. That includes Amazon, BNN, Apple Books, and of course, at Bain ebooks at bain.com. The monsters of august sale amazing discounts on all larry korea's monster hunter international series ebooks also this month excellence is afoot the bane hardcovers for august are now at booksellers everywhere first up is 1636 the atlantic encounter by eric flint and walter h hunt with the colonization of the north american continent came chattel slavery and the near extermination of native populations But now, in a change, 1636, the newly formed United States of Europe have a chance to make history's misdeeds right. Can a new course be taken? If anybody can make it so, it will be those can-do folks from Grantville. Also out in hardcovers at booksellers is Days of Burning, Days of Wrath by Tom Crapman. Amid the chaos of war, a new leader arises. He is Hamilcar, Carrera's young son. Amilcar stands poised to obliterate the last enemy base on his planet. Revenge was always going to be his, but now Carrera may finally get what he least expected, renewal. Days of Burning, Days of Wrath by Tom Crapman and 1636 The Atlantic Encounter by Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt are now available at booksellers everywhere. (laughs) This is part two of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Well, I want to welcome Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt to the podcast. Back to the podcast. Hello, guys. guys. It's great to see you this time. We're going to... We are recording... um, a uh, video version of it. Of course, you might also just be listening out there. Um, we're going to have both versions uh, available as, as we've been doing Eric Flint's a modern master of alternate history fiction and more than three, with more than 3 million books in print. He's the creator of the multiple New York times bestselling ring of fire series, starting with uh, 1632. He's written with David Drake, David Weber, um, I think you're working on a new Honorverse book? Um, yeah, I am. I am. And was for many year labor union activist and lives uh, outside of Chicago over there on the other side of the line. Uh, Walter H Hunt is the creator of the popular Dark Wings space adventure series he has near which are available uh, at Bain eBooks, by the way, he has nearly 20 years experience in high tech as a software engineer and technical writer. His writing reflects an abiding interest in history. And this is a pretty prime example. Of what we're going to talk about really? His area of college study, which is what he studied, but science fiction has been his favorite reading material since he watched Neil Armstrong walk on the moon when he was but a lad. Yes. He, he is an active Freemason as, as shown by the symbology on his shirt. Um, and a lifelong baseball fan. He lives in, as shown by all the baseball references in the book, um, and he lives in master, Eastern Massachusetts with his wife and daughter. Um, Daughter's
2: out of town now.
1: Uh,
2: so 24- at,
1: at booksellers now uh, is Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunch's uh, novel, 1636, The Atlantic Encounter, which is a book in the Ring of Fire series. Yeah. One other uh one other historical um uh fact that you have to deal with in the book and you do deal with it is when they come across um slavery in New Amsterdam. And uh there's, there's good, a nice little section where um where our characters talk about this and and because they're going to have to decide what to do about it. We got uptimers and uh downtimers who are encountering a slave market basically.
2: Yeah, and not just in Virginia. It's no, no. Actually, there
3: was a stretch in American history where there are more slaves in New York City than anywhere else. Uh, and in fact, um, um, the, the book Walter and I did, Council of Fire, actually takes it up more. Um, it's it's actually more of a prominent uh, feature in that novel than it is in the one that's coming out today from now. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's by the time most people become. Most Americans become aware of American history, you're at the pre revolutionary period. And then slavery's in the South and the North. Okay, you go back a little earlier, no, no, you have slavery not in every colony, but you certainly did in New York.
2: And not much earlier. There yeah. was there was there were slave auctions in Faneuil Hall in Boston in the seventeen fifties. Slavery doesn't disappear from New England until just before the revolution. Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, that's the start of what uh, people call the 1619 Project. That's when the first slaves were brought over the United States in the 1619 and weren't taken to the yeah. South.
1: So, I mean, this is, but this is the big dilemma for a, if you're from the future and you travel back to the past um, and you hit a historical circumstance that just morally outrages you. What what are you going to do? I mean, yeah. you're not going to be able to change the entire of society, right? So what how how are you going to deal with it? Sure.
3: there are two of the central hero of the whole series Mike Stearns is set is on on several occasions that the two great evils of that time that he wants to if not eliminate at least cripple them are uh, chattel slavery in the new world and the second serfdom in Eastern Europe and in different ways they're trying to deal with both of those issues to one degree of success or another and um, the one thing is that in both cases they're they're ca- because we're in the early 17th century. They're catching both the development of New World chattel slavery and the development of second serfdom in Eastern Europe pretty early. They're not in really entrenched yet. So um, there are things that that you know can be done, um, but there's no magic wand either. You know, there's no. Um, 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 it, it, uh, there's an, an other books that are coming out soon in the series uh, are Calabar's War, 1636 Calabar's War. Uh, w- it was written by uh, Ch- Chuck Gannon and, and, and Robert Waters, and it's coming out in April. And that take that deals directly with the issue of slavery. It's focused particularly in South America and the Caribbean. Uh, and then. Um, and then even prior to that Chuck and I are coming out with 1637 the uh, no peace be line where the issue of slavery is a very prominent feature and in particular the dutch have to start dealing with and that's also going to be a major feature in the uh, in the anthology the new world anthology i'm not sure when that'll come out probably not till 2022 i think cuz we yeah. do Lined up ahead of me. I
1: imagine she'll probably, uh, we'll see where Tony puts it. Well,
3: yeah, I mean, you know, right. I can only get many.
1: I bet she might put it next fall, 2021. Um,
3: it's possible,
1: yeah. We will see how many. We'll see, how uh, see if we need to ring a fire book that season.
3: Well, <laughs> so. we'll have to because we also almost have. The Rambo Gazette nine finished. Uh, the only thing I'm waiting is for, we're waiting on me to write my story and I'm waiting on Tom Kidd to finish the cover. So.
2: Right. Uh, Cause you got to write the story based on the cover.
3: Write this, well, I already, I, I could start now because I know what it is. Cause Tom and I worked it out, but, uh, so on with it.
1: tell us about New Amsterdam and Jamestown and, um, the way that, because the basic, point of all the ring of fire is that a town from 2000 west virginia gets thrown back in time to 1632 in the middle of germany um and now they've made their way to the new world um and and pete one of them doesn't even want to go see west virginia if they get a chance because they you know that's gone now Um, (laughs) what uh what is uh what are these towns like and how are they subtly different than they were because grantville has shown up
3: well, the first thing you got to understand about all these towns is how small they are. Uh, I mean, New York probably doesn't even have a thousand people in it. Uh, New York City, I'm talking about. Um, and uh, I'm Walter would know more than I would about Jamestown and Boston, but uh, none of Boston. them are big. I mean, we're talking what would be considered small towns today. Um,
2: yeah, Boston's very small. Yeah. It's on, a, it's, it's on a, a small peninsula with three big hills on it only one of which is still there um, New Amsterdam if it, when you think about New York uh, you think about you know the Empire State Building or you know downtown <laughs> all of that is outside of New Amsterdam um, it, it, New Amsterdam is right down near the, the very tip of Manhattan and it's tiny there are garden plots and and uh, and bodies of water inside New Amsterdam we found a map I, th- I think we did. We put a map in, in the book. I think we did.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah we did. there's
1: maps,
2: and it's tiny.
1: <laughs> we got good maps.
2: <laughs> we do. Mike, 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 uh, Nup does a great job. Yeah, there is a map in New Amsterdam, and it's it's tiny. It's, the the Bowery's are beyond uh beyond the edge, and we think of the Bowery boys, you know, they're way down in the bottom of New Bottom of Manhattan, but, but that's there.
1: um, going. and and you know, you mentioned that I, I guess. Harlem is where the farms were that supported the place. Oh, yes.
2: right? Harlem And Harlem doesn't even exist in 1636.
1: Uh, is there oh. a canal yet to be filled in later? No. no, <laughs> And made into Canal Street?
2: New Amsterdam
1: is... is where I spent most of the 90s.
2: <laughs> 15 to 20 years old and it hasn't really hit its stride yet. Um, in fact, it's, it's bleeding money. The, the 19 who are the the, uh, the the grandees who run the colony from from Amsterdam. Um, they are losing money in a big way. they're, they're, they're they haven't even fought the natives. Yeah, that's that's since
1: uh, keeps War is, is five years away. But they know their fate. Because they have the history and so
2: But they know it's not going to happen because England is out of the picture. So they
3: don't write.
1: So they have no Yeah,
3: I well, it goes beyond that. This will be taken up more in the anthology, but the Netherlands, which had been reunited, um, because the uh, Cardinal Infante Don Fernando, who's the younger brother of the King of Spain, did succeed in, well, conquering a great deal of the of the Dutch uh, provinces, and then he couldn't get Amsterdam, so they they wind up cutting a deal and and they reunited, but they established freedom religion and so forth. That's all covered in sixteen thirty three and sixteen thirty four, the Baltic War. Um, since then, the Netherlands have stayed on very good terms with the United States of Europe. They make it a point of that they they're not formally allied because that would Fernando has a problem on his hands, which is his older brother is not at all happy with what he did by basically carving out the Netherlands as his own kingdom is what it amounts to. so he's trying to avoid any you know anything that would officially trigger off a war with his brother but in practice, they get along quite well. And, and and Mike Stern's attitude, and he's no longer in power, but he's influenced. He's very influential. Has always been that that what he wants to see in in the new world is is to retain a number of different European colonies there, plus the native development, so that there's no one power that really becomes super dominant the way the English colonies did. Um, And he thinks that's the best way to keep the what's sometimes called the New World Holocaust from happening. So that's uh, the,
1: that's the real motive for keeping France from...
3: Yeah, they don't want the French to establish. Yeah, exactly. They
1: do what, yeah.
3: No, exactly. They're not particularly trying to drive the French out of of Canada, but they don't want the French to, they don't want the French to become what England became in, in our own history. That's basically what they're doing. And they're all really
2: interested in doing it. Huh? The French want to do it. They're they're all yeah yeah Yeah,
3: I know. Um, So that was always Mike Stern's attitude, and you know he's not he's often in Eastern Europe now fighting wars, but but his his position has been replaced. His 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 position politically has been replaced by Ed Piazza, who's now the not in this. Well, yeah, toward the end of this novel, he's now the new. Um, Prime Minister of, I'm trying to remember Walter. When do what? When do exactly do we end um, um, uh, Atlantic Encounter? It's is June. June, huh? June. June. Yeah. So yes, is just basically on the verge of being elected the new Prime Minister. But what has been happening through the novel is that he's the President of the Province of Sardinia Franconia, but he's also got what amounts to a shadow government, which is pretty standard in the parliamentary procedure. But he's the shadow prime minister who's out of office, but he also happens to be the president of the r- richest province in the country. So that gives him a lot of, this expedition is essentially, a, it's unofficial, but it's really being financed and and, and supported by, by that province. That's how it works.
1: Um, so Walter was t- telling me about, you know, there's, He put some baseball references in here and such, um, and it it brought up the interesting thought that um, you have to, now that we are 20 years away from 2000, um, you have two different sets of the past that you have to deal with because they can't make baseball references to anything you know that's happened in recent history
3: right it's it's something in this series and it, it gets me more of a problem far to go you have to be careful about which is that and don't forget there's close to 200 people writing something in this series so it's you know i mean many of them are just writing one story but People, you have to keep reminding them and reminding yourself that that remember the only modern technology they have, other than what they may have developed since the Ring of Fire themselves, is whatever existed prior to May of two thousand. So you know. Um,
2: no flash drives. Yeah,
3: right. Exactly. It's things no, like that. No, be very careful. No
2: smartphones. Though. No i No streaming media. Computers look like boxes on the desk.
3: Well, I still do. I mean, <coughs> mine, but uh, <laughs> okay. Well, okay, I'm old fashioned. Screw Uh I don't like laptops. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you do. You have to be careful about not giving people technology that that some some damn nitpicker is going to say, ah, ah, "Ah, that wasn't invented till the year 2007. Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, Eric, have you ever considered throwing a modern-day town back into Grantville? <laughs> so you have three sets of time <laughs> problems. No,
3: no, no. no. no, okay. no, no. <laughs> no. has or... changed is that if, if you go back and read the first novel, sixteen thirty-two, there's a there's a scene. Where the the Croat cavalry has raided Grandville and they're charging down the street and they, they get ambushed by people firing from the streets. If you go to manington today, when I wrote it, that was accurate to what manington looked like, but they tore all that down, and if you go there now, it's all these low modern you know fast food joints, and that scene would not work at all um. So be it. But uh, no, I have not thought of doing that. And and, and <laughs> wish you hadn't brought it up, I'll have nightmares it, it.
2: sounds <laughs> like a <dog>. no. <laughs> I would like to have have uh, Stefan and 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 the the dire woman to actually get to get to that part of Virginia and see it, and 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 see things and have have them not recognize any of them, but uh, but I, but certainly no evidence of anything other than that. Because that would be crazy.
1: What do we? What else do we need to talk about the dirigible? um, What What is the cool? What's the possible uh, uses we might see of the dirigible?
2: It's primarily there for reconnaissance.
3: The thing that, and this actually features more. Even than it does an Atlantic Encounter in the book that Chuck and I have coming out in November is the big thing that that puts it <clears throat> up in the air seven hundred feet. It's not a weapon; it's a platform, and you can see a long, long ways when other people can't. And if you do it right, it's it's. You can make yourself almost invisible if you do it right. You have to pick the right time and this and the other. But but people don't see you, and you're seeing them. And and if something has actually figured a number of times, a number of different novels uh, in the series is that the uptimers do fairly quickly have aircraft that not a whole lot, but they do have, and they're very you know they're very. I mean they're not much bigger than a Piper Cub, but Still, you got aircraft, and they're not all that effective usually as weapons. But the reconnaissance that it enables you to do, as long as the weather's good, it just changes everything. You know, I mean, prior to that, armies could march and no one knew where they were unless you could send out a cavalry patrol to find them. And now, all of a sudden, you got some guy up there in a, in a machine up in the air, and he, you know, and he can see where you are. Hundred Miles away, you know, and we, we
2: show that in three or four different places in the book.
3: I'm sorry?
2: Block Island, we, we show it off Block Island, we show it in their expedition with the <laughs> Chesapeake. And then of course, we show it right at the end in the vineyard. and each time we're trying to emphasize exactly that, that. that this is a, this is a an advantage that the other side doesn't have and doesn't know that it it's at a disadvantage until it's used on
3: Now, as to what will happen with that dirigible after the end of this book, and you know, what will happen afterwards, I don't know. Walter and I haven't talked about it.
1: Well, you named it the John Wayne. I was speculating that because because Eric thinks John Wayne was probably like a big old bag of hot air, but he named it. He named it. Uh, Okay, Walter (laughs) named it. He's a Freemason. He was, was Oh. oh, he's a Freemason. John Wayne can't was a boy, wait. I did not know. sure was. I didn't know
2: that. I don't know. That's the, see, that's the, the secret Illuminati thing. Is,
1: yeah, so. yeah, <laughs> yeah,
3: Yeah. Oh. Yeah, no, I, he came up with a name, and yeah, you know, I wasn't going to make
2: up. It sounded good. It sounded okay. like they, they picked somebody who they who they liked, and and there's re- no reason for, for them not to like him.
1: I just, yeah, I agree.
2: He hadn't yeah. died in 2000. Was he already dead? Uh, but he, he seems like a good all, sort of all-american hero guy
1: he, yeah. guys
2: have, he was long them. but he was <laughs> but he was you know this presidential medal of freedom guy the all-american who's in the longest day he's, well, he's, yeah, he's yeah. there's
3: plenty of reasons why
2: americans would would you know would name him. sure i mean if it'd been me i probably
3: would have picked humphrey bogart but oh you
1: know. uh, yeah or uh, bruce dern huh <laughs> for uh for black sunday yeah. <laughs> So uh, what what is coming out? What are you guys working on?
3: Well, what we are working on next, what Walter and I will be doing next is the sequel to um, 1636 Cardinal Virtues. We're doing the the next stage of the, uh, well, the, the French Civil War sort of is just getting rolling at the end of, uh, just getting started at the end of Cardinal Virtues. And that's what Walter and I will be working on next. Uh, other than that, um, I, the, I'm hoping. Did that. Huh? We did that. Yeah, I'm hoping we can continue that story. I really like it, but you know, it's like you know, we have to see how the sales are. We just don't know yet. Uh, book came out in November. We should not usually takes about a year before you really know how well books do.
2: And I have two other series in progress.
3: And if it's doing well enough, and Tony's minimal, we'll continue that story. Yeah, that one's a lot of fun. And Walter and I spent a lot of time developing that world, and it's uh, it's 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 an unusual fantasy world. It's one that
1: yeah, that's cool. Council of Fire. Thank you for the all,
2: the, all the history there. Eighteenth century is really my wheelhouse. I, I know a lot about that period. It's
3: well, and also we're also working with both Native American and African mythology, which is you know it's not. <laughs> it's a different fantasy setting than you usually encounter so it's,
1: that's uh, about to be out in mass market in the fall i can't remember exactly when but that'll uh yeah it is yeah I yeah i saw
3: that and uh, i forgot one month but yeah it's coming
2: out yeah that's the uh that's the the montcalm wolf buddy novel <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: no it's a lot of fun it's the uh yeah it's a it's a fantasy world where magic um Oh, let's not even get into it. It's no, cool. <laughs> <What's that? laughs> so uh, what else are you working on, Walter, that you, um, you might want to mention?
2: Well, I've done two novels for uh, uh, Wordfire Press. This is the second one. It's a uh, it's a series of alternate history novels for uh, crypto history novels about mesmerism, which is a 19th century fake science. There's one called Elements of Mind, and this one's called Harmony and Light. And there's a third one called Pass into Shadow, which I've written
1: 20,000 words of.
2: Cool.
1: Those will no doubt be available as e uh, ebooks on at Bain ebooks because we have yeah, both
2: ebooks. Uh, the first one has, a, has an audio book and the second one's gonna have an audio book shortly. And I'm really pleased with those too. Uh, last cool. summer uh Ring of Fire Press published a right, yeah, alternate history, history novel called City by the Bay, which is set in uh of Cia, which is California. Except it's California is part of the the uh, Russian Empire. Because this is a world in which there's no United States. So there's British North America, French North America, uh, New Spain, and Nevada, which is which is the Russian West Coast. And that came out very well. I'm very pleased with that. And I hope that there will be a point at which the the base novel that explains why there's no United States will appear. I haven't finished it yet. But they got this out. And uh, I think it's very good.
1: <laughs> cool. Cool. My and wife, Eric, the um, uh, we're we're seeing the return of Victor and what are those characters' names and uh the
3: Victor Casha, uh Anton Zilwicki, um those are the two there are, there are others, um uh, uh what's happening here, this is the book I'm working on with David Weber. That's it's it's a direct sequel to Cauldron of Ghosts, which was the last book we did together in the universe. But it also picks up to some degree it serves as a sequel to Uncompromising Honor because um, it picks up. Uh, you know, David has sort of like three threads in that series. Kind of, well, it's kind of like the 1632 series. You know, it's it branched out, um, and but mostly it's a sequel to Call of Ghosts, and it follows up uh, on after Michelle Henke has has taken Mesa. Which is at the end, and well, I don't want to. For people who have not read those books, I don't want to give away too many spoilers. But, but the same characters now have something new they have to figure out. Is they're trying to figure out where the alignment is. That you know, there's this this mysterious and very malevolent uh, force that's been screwing around in the background that they know is there but most people don't accept that that it's there although some do some more and more are doing it but so to a large degree what this now is about is their search to try to find where it is so they can put a you know sculpture and,
1: and they're kind of spy adventurer type guys i'm sorry they're kind of spy
3: uh it's kind of like anton's more the uh uh, although he gets in plenty of adventures, but he's sort of the uh, uh the analyst, and and Victor is is more the uh, on the, on the ground operative. Um, and I can't really say much more about that without I just don't want to give away too much of the plot, but um, you a title for it, <laughs> the current title, um. <laughs> Is cloak of alignment. It was cloak of eagle, which I never liked. Uh, even I'm the one who came up with it, but I didn't like it. Uh, right now, I what I proposed to David hadn't said yes or no. But but since it's been quite a while since he hasn't said yes or no, I just said I right, found I'm going to go ahead and do it, and you can always change it later if he wants to. But I've changed it to cloak of alignment, uh, which makes sense if in the context of the book. Um, the bad guys are called the alignment, but there's two different alignments. Never mind. Um and it's it's a slow book to write because there's a whole lot of new things that have to be worked out and And I'm doing the first draft, and David's tied up with other things so i'm I'm developing stuff, and then I you send it to him, and he says, Well, it doesn't really work. So there's a lot of rewriting involved. um yeah but it's, it's it's gonna be a good book. I uh, say that i' I'm, I'm I'm pleased with it. It's just. You know, it's, it's, I'm winding up having a budget more time for it than I uh, initially thought, because it, the problem is this book is actually going into new stuff which normally the books I've done with David are following him, not preceding them, but this is so it takes a lot more figuring out, including he has to figure stuff. out.
1: What um anything else we want to say about the uh, the Atlantic encounter. I, uh, you know, it's a good
3: novel. It really is.
1: I mean, I think
3: people will enjoy it. Um, And you know, it it it, there have been stories set in the New World uh, that have come out in the series already, but this this sort of marks a new step forward in that. It kind of gives an anchor for a lot of other books that will be coming out later and other stories. The first first of which will be this anthology we're doing.
2: and Chuck's I new book in the Caribbean. I'm pleased, huh? I'm sorry. Chuck's new Chuck's your new book in the Caribbean and dovetails into it, and we made sure that it that it fit because Chuck and I had a couple conversations. About that.
3: Yeah, that was yeah because Chuck and I have been doing a different line of story that takes place in the Caribbean, and it, it, there's an overlap. You got to be careful that that works out okay. Which
2: we work very hard at to uh, con- get uh, uh, consistency. Yeah, yeah, it. Mm-hmm. It's, See, they it's, keep, but they they. Keep, keep us honest which is
1: good Um, well that's a ring of fire staple is the consistency um and the coolness of the of the whole thing well the book out at booksellers right now is um 1636 the atlantic encounter by eric flint and walter h hunt um eric and walter thank you so much for talking with us about the atlantic encounter pleasure all right That was part two of a two-part interview with Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization— But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart Star Kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League. And hell is riding in her wake.
0: And now David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. so Technodyne's accuracy estimates at extended range were almost on the money, Rear Admiral Rosiak said, using the hand unit to highlight a column of numbers on the briefing room's bulkhead smart wall. We can't be positive, but the hot wash analysis suggests Technodyne's estimate was accurate to within five or six percent, which, he looked around the unhappy faces of Admiral Isatalo's staff, was higher than the estimate Maylene and I plugged into our pre-battle planning. Unfortunately, ONI's estimate of the Manti missile defense's capabilities was nowhere near accurate. So even with the better-than-expected accuracy, the actual hit ratio still sucked vacuum. In fairness to ONI, ma'am, Rear Admiral Lamazana put in, nobody who's gone toe-to-toe with the Mantis has gotten home again to tell us how good their defenses really are. The best anyone's been able to do is extrapolate from the loss ratios, using our own capabilities as a baseline. She shrugged ever so slightly. It seems pretty clear that baseline was too optimistic, but it was the only one they had. Jane Isatallo's jaw tightened at that unpalatable reminder. But it was exactly the sort of reminder Lamazana was supposed to give her, and she nodded in recognition. So your recommendation is what, Bart? She asked after a second. We have two options, ma'am, either of which has pros and cons, Rosiak replied. One is to simply fire the biggest damned missile salvo the galaxy's ever seen. I don't care how good their defenses are on a ship-for-ship basis. Hit them with enough birds to completely saturate their counter missiles and point defense, and something's getting through. Assuming we're right about the blind fire hit probabilities, my people estimate that a 30,000 missile launch should produce a minimum of 400 hits, despite their defensive capabilities. Assuming they've actually shown us all of those capabilities yet. Lamazana added in a carefully neutral tone. Assuming that, Rosiek acknowledged, nodding at the intelligence officer. I think Maylene's right that we have to assume they may not have. Although, I also have to say, I find it a little difficult to believe anyone could see 6,000 missiles coming at him and not pull out all the stops against them, however good he thought his defenses were. Having said that, I don't have any desire at all to get caught with our arses hanging out the way certain other people have. Two or three people, Isatalo among them, surprised themselves with smiles at his last sentence. Although it wasn't really funny, given how many of their fellows, officers and enlisted, those other people had gotten killed. And Bart can say that when Ramallah or Maylene couldn't, she reflected. Because he's battle fleet, just like Crandall and Philoretta. And he does have a point. I realize we have deep pockets where missile pods are concerned, she said then. I'd really prefer not to use them up at the rate of five or 6,000 per heavy cruiser, though, she added in a desert dry tone. So let's hear option two, Bart. Should I assume you're thinking in terms of two-step? Yes, ma'am, I am. Rosiac waved at the smart wall without looking away from Isotalo. On top of their active defenses in EW, Fujoyant CIC agrees with my own people's conclusion that the Mantis have to have found some way to protect against down-the-throat shots. Nobody's prepared to go out on a limb over exactly how they're doing that, but my own feeling is that they have to have found some way to create a sidewall to cover the ahead and astern aspects of a wedge. Not to dispute Bot's conclusion, ma'am, Rear Admiral Romala said, but if they've managed that, they have to be playing even faster and looser with physics than our worst-case assumptions. Not necessarily, Captain Malati Raghavendra said. Fujoyan's captain sat at Isatalo's left elbow, directly across from Romalis, both because it was her right as the task force's flag captain, and because Isatalo respected her level-headed, one might almost have said phlegmatic, common sense. Like Isatalo and Rosiak, Raga was battle fleet, but she'd started in engineering, not tactical, which helped explain why she had so far attained only captain's rank in the Admiral Heavy SLN. What do you mean, Malati? The Admiral asked. Well, ma'am, speaking as an ex-snipe, there's no real problem with generating a, call it a bow wall, for want of a better term. You'd need generators that were a lot bigger and more powerful to produce a wall with that much area, but that's pretty straightforward. Just a matter of engineering, really. The problem, she nodded at Romalis, is that every time you put it up and closed the front of your wedge, your ship wouldn't be able to accelerate. But these people weren't accelerating. In fact, if they have something like that, it might be the reason they weren't. They were rolling ship, Captain, Ramalas pointed out, but his expression was thoughtful, not dismissive. Yes, and a lot faster than they could have on thrusters, Ragavendra agreed. They have to be using their wedges for that. But we don't know how quickly they could put the thing up or down, and none of us were looking for any evidence of it at the time. One thing my tactical officer noticed, though, was that after they initially rolled up against our fire, None of their ships ever changed attitude twice in a row. Twice in a row? Isotalo repeated. What I mean, ma'am, is that they were obviously clearing telemetry or sensor channels to take peeks downrange at our birds. But they did it in a staggered sequence, using a different ship each time. I'm wondering if that was because of the time it took to deactivate and activate the bow wall generators. The actual engagement time was too short for us to draw any kind of conclusions but I think it's worth bearing the possibility in mind. Agreed. Romalis nodded and returned his gaze to Isotalo. And I think I see where Bot was going with this. For them to handle that much fire without any evidence of significant damage, whatever they're using to protect the forward aspect of their wedges, must be a hell of a lot tougher than anything ships that size ought to mount. I wouldn't like to face that kind of beating with a super dreadnought sidewalls, to be honest. And as the captain points out, the sheer area they're covering means they must have given up a lot of volume and power supply to cram the suckers in. You have to wonder if they can mount sidewall generators equally heavy, don't you? That question did cross my mind, sir, Rosiak replied. If so, we may be looking at a flipped situation. One in which we can expect better penetration and more hits going for the other fellow's sidewalls, rather than trying to cross his T. And that's a much narrower target which means we need more accuracy to hit it. Again, a big enough deluge of missiles would probably give us the hits we need through blind chance, but Admiral Isatalo's right about the number of birds we'd need on a per ship basis. Expenditures like that would burn through even our ammo supply before we ever got to the primary missions, but to avoid them, we need to get close enough to maintain our control links right up to the terminal phase. Which, he pointed out, turning back to Isotalo, is one of the things Two-Step is designed to do. Yes, it is, she acknowledged. She thought about it for a moment, then sat forward in her chair and tapped her index finger on the surface of the briefing room table. Yes, it is, she repeated more briskly. To be honest, I still have reservations about the concept. God knows we've discussed it enough for all of you to know what they are, but I think Bart's right we've got to shorten the control loop if we're going to hurt these bastards. In fact, I'd love to get close enough to be able to launch inside their hypergenerator cycle loops. And only a drooling idiot would let us get that close with an end space approach. So I'm afraid that only leaves two step, Isidore. She turned to Captain Isidore Hampton, the task force's staff astrogator. Hampton was a swarthy dark eyed fellow, who normally radiated an impression of calm competence. He still looked competent. But Calm would have been pushing it at the moment, she thought, and with good reason. I can't see another approach, she told him. I realize it'll be putting a lot of pressure on you, but if anybody can pull it off, you can. And before we start, let me say that I don't see where the tactical situation's likely to be a lot worse, even if your numbers are off in the end. What I'm saying, and this is for the record, is that I fully realize the difficulty of what I'm asking you to do. I've made my decision to try it anyway based on all the information available to me. But I don't expect or demand miracles. Having said that, I do expect you to do your damnedest to make it work anyway. Ma'am, we can do it, Hampton replied. We'll have to come in on the far side to avoid the resonance zone, though. Understood, Isotalo said. Every wormhole created a resonance zone in the volume between it and the end space star with which it was associated. Translations out of hyper and back into end space in those areas weren't merely risky. They were extremely dangerous. So TF-1027 would be forced to approach the terminus from the side farthest from prime. That would extend the jump somewhat, but the Mantes were also positioned outside the terminus. Probably because they knew she couldn't micro jump into the area between them and the primary even if she'd wanted to. We figured that when we first started looking at Two-Step, she reminded him. And at least the mantis seem to be cooperating. So far, ma'am, Hampton acknowledged. And I'm fairly confident of hitting the distance pretty close. Translation scatters likely to turn formation keeping into a god awful mess, though, especially that close to the terminus. Several heads nodded and she grimaced. I know, she said. But somebody way back in one of the ancient wet navies on Old Terra said something one time that I'm afraid applies here. To paraphrase, Some things have to be left to chance in a battle. I know that's anathema to any good battle fleet CO, but in this case, she smiled tightly at Romalis and Lamazana. I think we're going to have to try it the sloppy, make it up as you go along, frontier fleet way. A chuckle ran around the briefing room despite the tension, and she sat back again. Instead of sending in one of the task groups, Bart, I want Bonropo and Sukahara to take the lead together. We'll hold Santini back as the follow-through. And since we're talking about shortening our command loops, we might as well go whole hog on it. This time, her smile could have been a shark's. That's interesting, sir, Commander Wozniak said. What's interesting, Tom? Lessem asked, looking up from the tactical problem he'd been playing through on his command chair's repeater plot. It looks like those donkeys of theirs may have more internal endurance than we'd thought, the ops officer replied. With your permission. He raised his eyebrows, a finger hovering over one of the icons on his touchscreen. and Lessom nodded. Wozniak's finger touched the icon, and a time-compressed tracking recording appeared on Lessam's display. The Commodore gazed at it, then grunted. Wonderful, he said sourly. Don't know how useful it'd be under normal battle conditions, Wozniak said. But it does give them some interesting options, doesn't it? One way to put it. Lesson acknowledged, the Solarian task force had started decelerating hard after the dismal failure of its initial attack. In fact, they'd gone to 4.4 kps squared, 92% power for a Nevada. He didn't think for a moment that they'd given up, though. If they'd wanted to do that, all they had to do was translate out. No, they were only buying themselves more time to think. Assuming they maintained their increased acceleration, they would reach a zero velocity relative to the terminus 12 minutes sooner, and 824,935 kilometers farther from it. And from a resting launch, a range of 2.7 light seconds would give missile flight times of almost exactly 42 seconds for the SLN's pre-war standard missile. Which was interesting, given the 42.7 second hypergenerator cycle time of a Saganami C. In the meantime, however, a host of tiny impeller signatures sped towards the decelerating battlecruisers from the far larger freighters following well behind them. Apparently, the Solarian version of the donkey could forward deliver itself, and presumably its missile pods, to a designated end user. As Wozniak said, not something that was likely to be critically important under most battle circumstances, but irritating as hell nonetheless. And maybe more than just irritating too, he thought. I wonder, get me Captain Amberline, please, George, he said. Aye, sir, the comm officer replied. And three seconds later, Captain Harriet Amberline appeared on Lessem's comm display. Behind her, he could see the bridge of HMS David K. Brown and the FSV's tactical section. Yes, sir, she said. I don't trust these people, Lessem told her. They've obviously picked their D cell to get inside our hypergenerator cycles in a normal space approach. In fact, I think they've picked it a little bit too obviously. I really hope they don't think I'm stupid enough to let them actually get to that point without translating the hell out of here. And if they don't, that suggests they have something else in mind. A micro jump that short's tricky as hell, sir. At the very least, they're likely to get a lot of scatter, she pointed out. And he nodded at the confirmation that she was thinking the same thing he was. Might not matter a lot, he pointed out in turn. They've got ten times the hulls we do, and the Nevadas actually have more broadside tubes than a Saginami C. I know we can fire off Boar and they can't. But that's still a lot of missiles, if they can ever get into their effective range of us. For that matter, the Nevadas have half again our energy broadside too. If they could get really close. He let his voice trail off, and Amberlyn nodded soberly. Just this once, she was delighted that his collar carried the twin planets of a Commodore, and hers carried only the four golden pips of a junior grade captain. Even how much slower your generator's going to cycle, I think it's time you went elsewhere, he continued. I promise we'll look after your waifs, and I'm giving you Minion and Lancaster for escorts. They've got less of the Astro Control people on board than Obusier." She nodded again. Randy, we'll have the rendezvous coordinates for you in a minute. Lessem waved one hand at Lieutenant Commander Ronald Kivlikan, Crew Ron 912 staff astrogator. Somebody will be along one way or the other to let you know how things work out. I'll be expecting good news, sir. Then we'll try our best to give it to you. And your going away presence probably going to help in that regard. Lessem, clear. That freighter or whatever of theirs, just translated out, ma'am, Rear Admiral Rosiak reported. Looks like a couple of their destroyers went with it. Damn, Admiral Isatalo said mildly. Obviously, she isn't a drooling idiot. Not a surprise, but one could always hope. Nothing wrong with hoping, ma'am, Rear Admiral Ramalus observed. The Chief of Staff stood beside her command chair, watching the master plot with her. Not as long as you don't let yourself get wedded to building your plans based on what you hope will happen, and in this case, you haven't done that. Nice of you to say so, anyway. Isatalo swiveled her chair thoughtfully from side to side while she pondered the plot. The icon of what she'd become privately convinced had to be a purpose-built fast support ship had just vanished from it. Accompanied by two more impeller signatures, CIC had tagged as destroyers which suggested the Manti CO had figured out what she was up to. On the other hand, she might not have, too. The task force had been decelerating at its current rate for 23 minutes, and its approach velocity was down to 10,179 kps. In just over nine and a half minutes, it would enter the 7.6 million kilometer maximum powered range of a standard Javelin missile. The chance of a javelin scoring a hit at 25.3 light seconds against the defenses, which had turned a 6,000 strong cataphract launch into mincemeat, was non-existent. But the range was going to go on falling. She needed to get at least another 10 or 15 light seconds closer if she hoped for a decent hit percentage. And the odds that the Manti CO would sit still for another 14 minutes, while she closed another 5.3 million kilometers struck her as low. It was possible the Manti expected her to try it, but neither one of them expected Isatalo to get away with it. On the other hand, Isatalo had already fired a 6,000 missile salvo at her. And she had to have seen the husky streaming forward from Isatalo's own supply ships to replenish TG 1027.3. That meant she knew Isatalo could fire a much, much larger salvo of cataphracts if she flushed all of her task group's pods at once. Nor would Isatallo need to incorporate a ballistic phase this time. The Mantis were already inside her powered cataphract envelope, with a total flight time of only 210 seconds. No doubt the Mantis wished TF 1027 would fire a bazillion or so missiles in her direction. There'd be plenty of time for her damned cruisers to translate safely into hyper, laughing down their sleeves at the stupid Sollies as a couple of hundred thousand expensive cataphracts saw their targets abruptly vanish and self-destructed at the end of their powered runs. But the support ship's cycle time had to be close to two minutes. So it was at least possible the Manti CO was simply getting it safely out of harm's way before the cataphracts got inside her cycle time. That didn't necessarily mean she knew what Isatalo was actually planning. Sure it doesn't, Jane, she thought sardonically. On the other hand, even if she does know what you're thinking, you may still get away with it. Any time now, I think, Commodore Lessa murmured, watching the range continue to fall. I beg your pardon, sir, Commander Tory said, and the Commodore shook himself and smiled crookedly. Just making a bet with myself about when this fellow's going to pull the trigger, he said. I'm wondering that myself, sir, the Chief of Staff admitted. And the other thing I'm wondering? as how cautious this particular rat is when it comes to sniffing the cheese. Lessom shoved back up out of his command chair and crossed the flag bridge to stand looking over Lieutenant Commander Kivlikan's shoulder. I'd hate to have them leave before the party begins. Tori nodded, standing at Kivlikan's other shoulder and watching the plot. The Salis had been decelerating for 34 minutes. The range was down to seven million kilometers, and their closing velocity had fallen to 7,293 kps. They were actually in extreme javelin range now, and they couldn't expect Cruron 912 to let them close much further, under normal circumstances at least. Lesson considered the geometry a moment longer, then nodded decisively. Better to encourage them, I think, he said, and looked over his shoulder at Commander Wozniak. Execute Picador, Tom.
1: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. And that's it for the podcast, thanks to audible.com and to podcast-themed composer Ruth Judkowitz, and the makings of Quantum Stone Soup, which is oh so much better than Stone Soup, because it's made by a bunch of villagers through multiple dimensions and ends up tasting just like Quantum Chicken Soup. but which is not dissimilar to quantum alligator soup and quantum rattlesnake soup. Plus, thanks, praise, and gratitude to Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt, authors of 1636, The Atlantic Encounter. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.